1: That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for What comes to mind when I say Jewish food? Bagels and lox? Kugels and knishes? If you're south of the Mason-Dixon line, the answer might be closer to matzah ball gumbo.
2: I didn't know what a bagel was. I didn't really know anything about Jewish food, so I didn't know what a kugel was. The only thing I knew was matzah and matzah balls.
1: You're listening to Gravy.
2: Gravy. Gravy. Gravy.
1: Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, we learn what it means to navigate a Southern Jewish identity in the small town of Natchez, Mississippi. Natchez offers the kind of picturesque backdrop you often see in Hollywood's rendition of the Antebellum South. Plantation homes with stately white columns, live oaks draped in Spanish moss, paddlewheel boats at the river dock. But Natchez was also home to a large and thriving Jewish community as early as the 1840s, and Jews in Natchez pieced together a culture that blended flavors of the old world with elements of their adopted home. Reporter Robin Amer grew up on the East Coast, but her Jewish family has lived in Natchez for more than 160 years. Now, they're among the last Jews left. She went back to Natchez to catch a glimpse of a culture and a community about to fade from view.
3: When I was little, my grandmother dressed me up in hoop skirts and pantaloons for the annual pilgrimage tours. She served Kentucky pie made from pecans and bourbon. She took her own bourbon straight up with a twist. She drove me past plantations and exclaimed with pride, This is truly the South. This was the old South. The gracious and genteel South. The white, moneyed, privileged South. And in our case? Jewish South. Do you want to tell me what you had for breakfast
0: this morning? I had a lovely breakfast this morning, yeah, with pancake and eggs.
3: This is my grandmother, Elaine. Or as we call her, pie. That's pie as in puddin' pie. Pie is 96 now. Her voice and her memory have faded with age. But I've been recording her for a long time. This is how she sounded when I interviewed her back in 2002. Tell me what you had for breakfast this
0: morning. Well, Robin, I had a half bagel and a cup of coffee. And your mother sent us some coffee, and it's delicious.
3: What did you have for breakfast? As a reporter, I asked this question at the start of every interview, both to check the mic levels and to put my subjects at ease. It's like a refrain. But food itself provides another kind of refrain, A lens through which I can understand the unique culture my Jewish family built in Natchez. And I want to understand it. Because mine may be the last generation around to try. There was a thriving Jewish community here. I have ancestors who were early adopters of Reform Judaism, and others who fought for the Confederacy. We ran an upscale clothing store that catered to socialites. We kept alive a temple built for hundreds of families. But now, the Jewish community is so small that you can tick off the names of its members like you're running through the guest list for a small dinner party. Bob and Elaine, Bo and Paris, Jay Lehman, Elise Rushing, and Jerry Krause. And that's about it. But if you want to see how big and alive the Jewish community once was here, the best place to start is the Natchez City Cemetery. Ironic, I know. But Natchez Jews had a burial society before they had a temple. And this sprawling green cemetery has an old Jewish section. I'm there with Terry Tillman. She's a close family friend, as are most of the people you'll hear in this story. But Terry is also special for another reason— She's one of several Gentiles who have become custodians of Jewish history as the community in Natchez has dwindled. Terry represents the Jewish community on the board of the cemetery. And as a board certified genealogist, she's poured over the family histories of nearly everybody buried here. I mean, everybody up there has a story and I don't know them all. I know a lot of them. We walk up a set of stairs and through an old brick archway covered in ivy. The granite keystone above the arch reads, Jewish Cemetery, 1844 to 1899. Inside the low brick wall, there are two long rows of white marble tombstones. The birth dates inscribed tell one story. Bavaria, 1821. Prussia, 1831. The dates of death tell another. Fayette, 1855. Natchez, 1899.
4: The biggest wave of Jews to arrive in the 19th century uh, was in the 1840s. They came from France, mostly from Alsace, and they also came from various areas of Germany, some of which are now in Poland.
3: A few of the tombstones are engraved with a depiction of the Berkat kohenim, the blessing that rabbis offer by raising their hands overhead and splitting their fingers into the shape of the letter V. Then there's the grave of seven-year-old Rosalie Beekman. Her tombstone is engraved with three roses.
4: One of which is just a bud, and that signifies that her life was cut short.
3: Rosalie was the only person killed in Natchez during the Civil War. She was struck down by shrapnel when a Union gunboat shelled Natchez from the river. Someone has left her a tiny Confederate flag. And something else, something unexpected. Her grave is covered with a bed of thick, tangled rosemary. Its boughs are spiny and deep green and dotted with tiny blue flowers. It smells fresh and pungent. This plant stops me. I've never seen so much rosemary in one place, and I normally associate this herb with the kitchen, with savory dishes like lamb or roast potatoes. So, what is it doing on this child's grave?
4: Terry knows. Rosemary is traditionally seen as a plant of remembrance.
3: In early English folklore, rosemary was said to improve memory. In later times, mourners placed rosemary in the hands of the dead, or wore it during ceremonies commemorating important battles. This link between food and memory, between food and history, I have experienced it here before.
2: How could you visit Mimi with curls in your hair?
0: Mimi would want me to look my best, and you know it.
3: Mimi was Pi's mother, my great-grandmother. She is buried here in our family plot. We made this visit in 2002 on Mimi's yard site. That's the anniversary of her death. It's
2: amazing that we're here on this date. It is.
3: Visiting on this date is a Jewish tradition of remembrance. Mimi is buried next to her parents, Pi's grandparents. Pi looks down at her grandmother's grave. He, she was a cook. She was
0: Sarah Gross Ehrman, and she was remarkable. She had more spunk and more spirit. And about five or six years before she died, she broke her hip. But that didn't stop her. And she tried to teach Dee, Dee about cooking. <laughs> and, it, and Dee Dee did accept it because she was such a good cook. But she was a remarkable person. How old was she when she died? Seventy fourteen, seventy
3: seven. Five, There's a lot going on here, a lot of memories flooding back all at once, memories of Pi's grandmother Sarah, and of Didi, their family cook. Now, this relationship between African American cooks like Didi and their white Jewish employers like my family is complicated enough to warrant its own story.
1: And actually, we'll go into it a bit next week on our website, SouthernFoodways.org.
3: But this moment stuck with me. Visiting her grandmother's grave reminded Pai, first and foremost, of her grandmother's cooking. She's standing in a graveyard, but I can see her mind wandering back to the kitchen of her childhood home. I found that this persisted. Food memories would pop up in the most unexpected places, triggered by the most unexpected moments. Those moments were like a secret clue to our family's history. Like the rosemary bush on Rosalie's grave. To understand Jewish food culture in Natchez, you need to know some basics about Jewish food culture as a whole. Traditionally, Jews follow the laws of kashrut. They keep kosher. There's strict regulations about what you can and can't eat. These rules are long and complicated, but the most important ones are also the easiest to remember. No pork, no shellfish, no mixing milk and meat. The opposite of kosher is treif. So like a cheeseburger, for example, a beef hamburger with cheese on top is very treif. A lot of modern secular Jews completely ignore these rules. I mean, I didn't grow up keeping kosher. My dad's signature dish on New Year's Eve was a shrimp cocktail. But Jewish food culture in Natchez defies kosher law in a way that dazzles and surprises, resulting in strange, delicious combinations that you won't find in the secular north. I want to give you an example, but to do that, my mom and I need to pick up the keys to the temple. So tell us where we're going right
2: now. We're going to Jay Layman's family business to pick up a key to the temple because Jay is president for life of the temple because nobody else would do it.
3: President for life, huh? Yes. The Layman's have been food brokers since 1914. Jay's grandfather sold sugar in barrels. His father sold canned corn and corned beef. Today, Layman Cash and Carry is a small warehouse stocked with everything from candy to pickled pigs' feet. It's not a kosher business. There's no market for it here.
2: My daughter wanted to come and record me getting the keys to the temple. Hi, Jay. Uh, How you doing? I was just telling you about Miss Naomi's matzo balls.
3: Miss Naomi was Jay's mother. She was an incredible cook, he tells me. She put on a show at parties with standing rib roasts and baked Alaska. She made Wiener schnitzel and donuts from scratch. And then there were Miss Naomi's matzo balls she thought they were the best matzo balls in town. They are. <laughs> I said some people might not agree. Yeah,
0: they are. And
2: just all you have to do is taste some of the other ones that people have made, and they're awful. They're inedible.
3: Traditional matzo balls are served in a soup, a clear, savory chicken broth dotted with big chunks of carrot, celery, and onion. But Miss Naomi made her matzo balls with turkey gravy.
2: They're not made with turkey gravy. You serve them with turkey gravy.
3: Oh, whoops. Sorry, Jay.
2: And that's what was served at, at the uh, Seder for 60
0: years, I guess.
3: The Seder is the traditional Passover meal. And I have never heard of a Jewish community anywhere else that serves matzo balls this way. Nor have I heard of another Jewish family celebrating Yom Kippur the way the layman's did. So would you fast on Yom Kippur? Yes. And then break the, path, the fast with... Pork roast. Pork roast. So to Miss Naomi's matzo balls, add Miss Naomi's break-the-fast pork roast, the most treif dish served on the holiest day of the Jewish year. Well, I'm sure she put garlic, and a lot of garlic, and salt and pepper, and put it in the oven, and it would have cracklings on it, which Daddy and I fought over. But Daddy and I fought over a lot of food. Uh <laughs> It's certainly not just Jay's family that mixed kosher and trafe in this peculiar way. So can you tell me what these are? Oh, you don't know. No, I do, but they don't know. The people listening to this radio interview won't know. I interviewed Pai in her parlor, surrounded by many of her most prized possessions, the antique china and silverware handed down from her parents and grandparents. My favorite pieces in the collection have always been the set of monogrammed china plates perched on the parlor shelf. My grandmother is holding one of them now.
0: The oyster plates. And this was a wedding present to the to grandfather and
3: grandmother growth. A Jewish wedding celebrated with oysters. A Yom Kippur breakfast celebrated with pork roast. What is going on here?
1: Coming up, what is going on with this southern Jewish food in Natchez? And what it means as the Jewish community dwindles there?
5: Hi, it's Melissa, and if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them Gravy said hey.
1: There is that sponsorship music, and here in Louisiana, everyone is sadly marking the end of crawfish season. Up in New York City, they are too. At least, they are at the restaurant Blue Smoke. That's because of a little something Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois introduced from his Louisiana upbringing. Crawfish? Sausage.
0: That was the first thing I put on the menu here at Blue Smoke and everybody kind of, their heads kind of came up and was like, what's going on? Like, crawfish sausage?
1: Chef Jean-Paul and Blue Smoke are dedicated to bringing the flavors of the South to New Yorkers. So dedicated, he arranges special deliveries of crawfish during the season. So
0: my uncle, they live in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and they own a catering business. And so about 80 pounds of crawfish tails, he's going to ship to me via airplane and I have to go pick it up at LaGuardia Airport.
1: Hand-delivered crawfish sausage and more, you can find info about both New York City locations of Blue Smoke at bluesmoke.com. Now back to Robin Amer and the question of what's going on with Jewish families in Natchez breaking their Yom Kippur fast with pork roast.
3: I'm a reporter, so typically when a question comes up like this, some tricky question of cultural and historical norms. I call an expert. Lucky for me, like everyone else in this story, the expert is also an old family friend. Marcy cohen Ferris is a professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She used to be the board president of the Southern Foodways Alliance, the organization that produces this podcast. And she literally wrote the book on Southern Jewish food. It's called Matzah Ball Gumbo, Culinary Tales of the Jewish South. Marcy also grew up Jewish in a small town in Arkansas, which helped a lot when she started peering into Jewish kitchens as part of her research. I sent out this crazy survey,
5: you know, about 10 pages long. But I knew these Jewish women and they knew my mother and my family. So they gave me kind of a pass and they were willing to answer this crazy 10-page survey. And I asked about what their Southern and their
3: Jewish traditions in the kitchen were like. Marcy sent her survey to more than 400 Jewish Southerners, including my grandmother.
5: Do you want to hear what your grandmother said? Absolutely. Okay, so I have to I have to just read you this, because it was one of the classics. So she said, Dear Marcy, I'm sorry that you had to waste a stamp on me, because I can't help you with Jewish cooking. My grandparents were French and German and wonderful cooks. However, as I recall growing up, our kitchen was wonderful,
3: but Southern and the other two, French and German. I was really surprised when I heard this. Right off the bat, here was Pai saying... Sorry, I don't have a relationship with Jewish food. But Pi also sent Marcy a recipe book that belonged to Pi's grandmother. And this collection of dishes tells a more nuanced story than the one my grandmother presented to Marcy.
5: There were over 40 different cake recipes which is classic. There are a lot of desserts. There were three different types of barbecue. So obviously nobody's keeping kosher. There were many recipes for biscuits, the bourbon balls, cheese straws up the yin yang. But then lots of Passover recipes. So you really see that's where Jewishness really is expressed in this culinary collection in the recipes that were special for Passover because you had to prepare special foods for Passover that didn't use white flour in them. So there was matzo ball soup and matzah meal cake and matzah charlotte, that's a special
3: dessert. There are traditional Alsatian dishes. There were five different recipes for lebkuchen. A kind of gingerbread my grandmother remembers eating on Christmas. Then there were dishes that harkened to the Creole influences of New Orleans, right down the river. Recipes
5: for deviled crabs, nine versions of deviled crabs, oyster
3: Rockefeller, shrimp creole, shrimp mousse, even ham souffle. Obviously, these same dishes are further evidence of my family's blasé attitude towards keeping kosher. At least that's what I thought at first. But Marcy says that my ancestors likely rejected the laws of kashrut for two other reasons
5: it was not easy to get kosher meats you know you'd have to have those shipped and sent up by bus by train by the mail and some people did that or they avoided eating meat but very difficult in a place that values pork shrimp oysters seafood those that's the elegant you know heart of the diet of the Lower Mississippi River.
3: Contrary to what my grandmother wrote, I don't see a family that's lost its connection to Jewish food in the pages of this book. I see a family that has kept some traditions and abandoned others. One that's negotiated a new identity in a new place. I see moments of assimilation and moments of tradition, sometimes side by side in the same meal. Or even in the same dish. I think that combination mirrored the space that the Jewish community occupied in Natchez. They were assimilated, yes, but always conscious of their unique identity, their special otherness.
5: Uh, they were very much a part of the community and very accepted uh, socially. But I think they were also very much aware of what it meant to be Jewish and how that made them very conscious of of who they were and their position in this little
3: southern town on the river. It's clear from talking to Marcy and my grandmother that filtering Jewish identity through southern food can produce some complicated results. These strains of southern and Jewish identity that sometimes complemented and sometimes clashed came to a head during one particularly memorable meal.
5: I called this the ham biscuit incident.
3: Mercy used to work at the Goldring-Woldenberg Institute for Southern Jewish Life, a group in Jackson that works to support Jewish culture in the South. In 1994, the group invited all the families with Jewish roots in Natchez back to town for a homecoming a huge celebration of the city's Jewish history that included services at the temple and a reception at an antebellum mansion called Stanton Hall. My grandmother helped plan the event, and the menu she proposed for the Natchez Jewish homecoming was straight out of the Old South. Shrimp mousse, crab dip, and ham biscuits. So that's a delicate little,
5: you know, biscuit with just thinly sliced, shaved, you know,
3: salty cured ham on it. Now, when Marcy saw the proposed menu, she was kind of horrified. Jews from around the country were coming in for this event, including the head rabbi of the Reform Jewish movement. It was actually
5: starting to become the greatest trafe buffet that one could ever imagine. It did appear that we were going to serve every possible non-kosher item that has ever been known to, to womankind was going to be on that table
3: in Jewish Natchez. So Marcy asked my grandmother if they could compromise. Maybe serve biscuits without the ham? My grandmother basically laughed in her face.
5: I think she said it might have been a naked biscuit. You know, how are we going to serve a naked biscuit? You know, that was just ridiculous.
3: I asked my grandmother for her take on this story, but the whole event has slipped into the fog of the past. Still, Marcy thinks she understands why my grandmother was so insistent.
5: I think that felt as though, excuse me, this is a Southern event, and it will smell like, taste like, look like, feel like, what I know is a proper event in Natchez. So
3: Marcy called for backup.
4: They had a dilemma, and it was with the menu at the opening reception, and I had to try to help them.
3: This is Mimi Miller. She's on that list I have of Gentiles who are helping to preserve Jewish culture in Natchez. She runs the Historic Natchez Foundation. And, like everyone else around here, she's a close friend of my grandmother's. Now, Mimi had known my grandmother for a lot longer than Marcy, and she was a local. Perhaps, Marcy thought... Mimi could talk to my grandmother and convince her to change the menu.
4: I said, I can't tell Elaine Lehman what to have at the opening night reception. We're going to have these New York rabbis, and this would just be so offensive to them. Mimi, you've got to do
3: something to help us. The day of the reception crept closer, and there was still no solution. Until one day, when Mimi Miller and my grandmother were driving around Natchez, getting ready for the event. With them was an intern named Kenneth Hoffman. My grandmother turned to Mimi Miller.
4: All of a sudden, she says, "I don't think they're happy with me in Jackson," and I have the slight panic, you know, of what I'm going to say. This would be the opportunity, and what in the world could I possibly say? And she said, "They don't like the menu at the Stanton Hall reception." She said, "You know, i told them this is not a New York Jewish homecoming. This is a Natchez Jewish homecoming." And what would you put in a biscuit if you didn't put ham in it?
3: That's when Kenneth, the intern, piped up from the backseat of the car.
4: And he, in the very nicest way, said, you know, Mrs. Lehman, said, I know just how you feel about them trying to turn this Southern Jewish homecoming into a, a Yankee affair or whatever. And he said, but you know, there's one thing about us Southerners, we don't like to offend. And she immediately said, you know, oh, Kenneth, you're, you're, you're right, we don't want to offend and the menu was changed. Nobody had to do anything. She changed it on her own.
3: Because Kenneth found a way to appeal to my grandmother's Southerness, she was willing to compromise in a way that she wasn't when she felt like her Southern identity was being affronted.
5: I think she just had so much pride about how they had survived that this was an event really celebrating Southern Jewish history and Natchez Jewish history. And thank you very much, they had done that beautifully without the help of East Coast, you know, rabbis and seminaries and institutions and Jewish organizations. The 10 of them had supported this congregation for a very long time and had done it, you know, alone.
3: Now, there's a little disagreement today about what actually happened at the reception. Mimi remembers that moment when my grandmother changed her mind, but Marcy said the final menu was still reflective of the Southern traditions pie wanted to uphold. That table still
5: was a compromise, and I have the photographs to prove it. And it was ham biscuits, and there were plain biscuits, and I think there was shrimp, and there were, you know, fabulous platters of you know small quiche I think also to kind of represent those Alsatian tastes but it was a beautiful meal and I remembered nothing blew up there were no you know no one fainted uh rabbis did not flee the room and everyone had a lovely evening
3: no rabbis fainted in the making of this brunch (laughs) nor
5: nor your grandmother
3: Back in present-day Natchez, my mom and I have just retrieved the keys to the temple. Temple B'nai Israel is our Jewish home away from home. My mother grew up here. She was confirmed here. Inside, the main sanctuary is two stories tall. Its walls are lined with intricate stained glass windows that flood the room with light. There are enough carved wooden pews to seat 500 people. And there's a rare historic pipe organ peeping out from over the bima. It's been years since I was inside the temple. The last time I can remember being here was with my mom and my grandfather, back in the winter of 2002.
0: Now getting the key to unlock the doors, we have to keep them locked up, because they're very valuable. Uh, People come by and want to buy them. Jews for Christ have been around here looking to see what they could do.
3: With so few members and no regular hours of operation, access to the temple happens on an as-needed basis. If tourists come to town and want to see the inside, they used to call my grandfather or one of the other members to get in. Today, it's a couple from Houston. Good
0: morning. Come morning. Yeah. Right you're right on the schedule. Hi. Uh, how do you do? I'm Robert Lehman.
5: Melinda Askin.
3: Melinda and David Askin are in the middle of a Mississippi road trip. David is Jewish, too, and was excited when he learned about the temple here.
0: You know, we saw it and uh, took some photographs outside and then decided, you know, we have to figure out a way to find the person with the keys that can let us in.
3: So Granddad shows them around, doing his best impersonation of a tour guide.
0: We have a student rabbi that comes once a month from Cincinnati, and otherwise one of us has been conducting uh, services, but we're down to now where we just don't have enough people to have a service anymore up here. Now, What's the reason that uh, the Jewish people won't stay in small towns like this? Is it just economic opportunities? That's only, only, only reason.
3: I'm not so sure about this. It's true that the opportunities in Natchez are pretty limited. The economy here is driven by tourism now, and Jews just don't seem to be moving here for those kinds of jobs. But the problem is self-perpetuating. The lack of a big Jewish population is a turnoff for people who want to be part of a big Jewish community. That was how my mom felt, at least, when I asked her about it recently. If you're
2: a religious family and with children, it's not really a good place to raise children Jewish.
3: Because there just aren't the resources. There's no Sunday
2: school, and they just don't have any like-minded families there. there's nothing wrong with them associating with the Christian community because I certainly did and I didn't lose my identity, but they have even less of a chance of having a Jewish identity than I did because there's so few Jews in town.
3: My parents raised me in Washington, D.C. We belonged to a reform synagogue that today has more than 2,500 families. There were so many Jewish kids in my public school system that we got the high holidays off from school. I live in Chicago now. And... As connected as I feel to Natchez, I cannot see myself living there. These decisions, made individually and collectively, are what has led us to this point. Back in the rec room of the temple, David Askin examines a case of old Judaica, Hanukkah menorahs, Seder plates, and other religious items from the congregation's history.
0: It's very sad to see a lot of this because... You know, it's disappearing. It's disappeared in so many of these little towns. And um, it's nice to see all of this, but it's also upsetting because it also shows you a way of life and a Jewish population that no longer exists in these places.
3: He calls over to my grandfather.
0: Mr. Lehman, can I get a picture of you over here with this display? Thank you.
3: Listening back, I find this moment so strange and poignant. My grandfather... Photographed. Like one of the artifacts. It's strange the moment when your living, breathing culture becomes a tourist attraction. And even stranger when you know it's the best case scenario. The congregation donated the temple building to the Institute for Southern Jewish Life in 1992. The plan was to turn the temple into a museum, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions about what that means. There isn't enough money to take care of the building indefinitely. Just putting in an elevator could cost more than $250,000. I want them to preserve the temple, but I also mourn the loss of the people here. Hopefully, we will have this building and its artifacts, just like I will have the oyster plates and the recipe book. I will have my memories of meals at Stanton Hall and in my grandmother's formal dining room. But there have been Jews in Natchez for more than 160 years. When the last one is gone, when my family is gone, what will we lose? It reminds me of that trip I made to the cemetery with my mother and grandmother back in 2002. Have you thought about whether you want to be buried here, Mom? Papa doesn't know we're gonna be buried in Washington,
2: most likely. Because mm. Daniel, Papa, wants you all to come and visit him.
0: But there's no guarantee that they'll be there. And I put that out of my mind, you'll be in that forest of people. But we'll meet in heaven, I guess.
3: In the present day, I walk back to my family plot, alone now. I decide that I want to say the mourner's cottage the prayer that Jews recite to memorialize the dead. I wonder when the last person will say Kaddish here. I wonder how often I'll come here after my grandparents are gone, when all I have left of them are memories and those oyster plates. I think I should repair that iron fence around their plot. I think I should plant a rosemary bush on their grave.
1: Robin Amer is a reporter based in Chicago. Thanks to Dr. Janet Bordelon, Macy Hart, Elise Rushing, Jerry Kraus, Carol Ann Blitzer, Rabbi Jeremy Simons, and Valerie Maxak for their help in reporting this story. Music in this episode was by Tres Tristes Tangos, Lachey Swing, Poddington Bear, The Underscore Orchestra, and Digital Primitives. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... Jewish immigrants weren't the only ones to find their way to the Mississippi Delta. There is a whole diversity to this region that not enough people know about. Case in point, the Lebanese community of the Delta. At one point in the early 20th century, Clarksdale, Mississippi was known as Little Lebanon. Pat Davis remembers his friends and family gathering at the Lebanese American Club when he was a kid.
2: Every Sunday we would all come together and some would bring fried chicken, some would bring cabbage rolls, grape leaves, kid being watermelons. And the kids would, you know, dance or play games. And then after we've eaten and all, we would make a big circle. And they would play, and they would sing songs, you know, about Lebanon.
1: You can learn more about the Delta Lebanese from a fascinating oral history project the Southern Foodways Alliance did. That's on our website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, an unusual find during a building project in a small-town city hall.
2: I walked in one Saturday looking at the renovation. I came in
1: one Saturday, and I was like, Holy mackerel, look what we have here. What made him so surprised? Hint, it has to do with barbecue. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.